My name is Cindy Bolton, and I serve you on the women's shepherding team here at OP. And I am happy to have dug into some scripture, and I want to share with you what Jesus and I, the Holy Spirit, talked about and learned together, um, and hope that it will um, be something for you that will move you in the from his spirit as well. Before we start that, though, we're going to do our Lectio. We're going to use our normal pattern. So I want you to just be quiet for a minute. Take a deep breath. I like to close my eyes when I do that. Um, and I try to tune everything out from the morning off and just be centered and focused with where you are in this minute now. the first time through, but as I read, pay attention to a word or phrase that draws your attention. You can write it down if you like. You can talk about it later. We're reading from Luke 13, verse 10 through 17. Now he was teaching in one of the synagogues on the Sabbath, and there was a woman who had, a disabling, who had a disabling spirit for 18 years. She was bent over and could not fully straighten herself. When Jesus saw her, he called her over and said to her, Woman, you are freed from your disability. And he laid his hands on her, and immediately she was made straight, and she glorified God. But the ruler, ruler of the synagogue indignant because Jesus had healed on the Sabbath, said to the people, there are six days in which work ought to be done. Come on those days and be healed, and not on the Sabbath day. Then the Lord answered, <clears throat> answered him, you hypocrites, does not each of you on the Sabbath untie his ox or his donkey from the manger and lead it away to the water to drink? And ought not this woman a daughter of Abraham, whom Satan bound for 18 years, being loosed from this bond on the Sabbath day? As he said these things, all his adversaries were put to shame, and all the people rejoiced at all the glorious things that were done by him. Thank you. 
Now I'm going to read the passage a second time. And as I do, I want you to notice what you see about Jesus' character in the passage. Now he was teaching in one of the synagogues on the Sabbath. And there was a woman who had had a disabling spirit for 18 years. She was bent over and could not fully straighten herself. When Jesus saw her, he called her over and said to her, Woman, you are freed from your disability. And he laid his hands on her, and immediately she was made straight, and she glorified God. But the ruler of the synagogue, indignant because Jesus had healed on the Sabbath, said to the people, There are six days in which work ought to be done. Come on those days and be healed, and not on the Sabbath day. Then the Lord answered him, You hypocrites! Does not each of you on the Sabbath untie his ox or his donkey from the manger and lead it away to water it? And ought not this woman, a daughter of Abraham, whom Satan bound for eighteen years, be loosed from this bond on the Sabbath day? As he said these things, all his adversaries were put to shame, and all the people rejoiced at the glorious things that were done by him. senses. What would you feel, smell, or see? What is your body posture? How would you react to Jesus in this situation? Now he was teaching in one of the synagogues on the Sabbath, and there was a woman who had had a disabling spirit for 18 years. She was bent over and could not fully straighten herself. When Jesus saw her, he called her over and said to her, Woman, you are freed from your disability. And he laid his hands on her, and immediately she was made straight, and she glorified God. But the ruler of the synagogue, indignant because Jesus had healed on the Sabbath, said to the people, There are six days in which work ought to be done. Come on those days and be healed, and not on the Sabbath day. Then the Lord answered him, You hypocrites, does not each of you on the Sabbath untie his ox or his donkey from the manger and lead it away to water? And ought not this woman, a daughter of Abraham, whom Satan bound for 18 years, be loosed from this bond on the Sabbath day? As he said these things, all his adversaries were put to shame, and all the people rejoiced at all the glorious things that were being done by him.
pray for us before we get started. Dear Father, Jesus, and Holy Spirit, thank you that you're present here in this room with us. We acknowledge your presence, and we invite you to enter our hearts and minds that you would teach us as we listen to your word and discuss it together, that we would be encouraged by what you have done and what you did for this woman and what you want to do for us. I pray that our words would be encouragement to each other and that we might see the goodness of the Lord in the time that we spend here together. We pray these things in your name. Amen. Well, good morning. Um, I'm really excited to be able to talk to you about this. I, um, I get kind of nervous out when I start studying scripture. I'm sure I'm not the only one in this room who's like this. But there's so much to dig into in this little short seven verses of scripture that I kept being pulled between the historical relevance and the huge statement that Jesus was making and then the wonderful, touching, beautiful thing that he did for this woman. So I hope that we'll be able to bring those two things together today and that I won't go over on time. <laughs> so anyway, when I teach, I love to interact with you. So I'm going to ask you some questions for the first half of the teaching and y'all just shout out the answers. So grab your copy of the scripture and let's start, okay? So we see in this first verse that it says he. We know that that was Jesus and he was doing something. He was teaching. And um, where exactly was he when he was teaching? That's right. And what day was he teaching on? The Sabbath. Yeah. The Sabbath is a key word in this passage. In these short seven verses, it is mentioned five times. So it's keep your ears open for that, okay? Um, then in verse 11, who's there? Yeah. A woman. Yeah. And what does it say about her? Crippled, bent. Anything else? Like, what, what was it that made her crippled? A spirit. And, and does it, do we know what, who or what that spirit was? Look later in the passage. Satan, yes. Um, what else do you see about her condition? How long it had been going on? 18 years. Yes. Wow. That's a long time. Considering that the lifespan in that time, that was probably at least half her life. Um, what do you imagine she saw? What was her visual scope of, her scope of vision? The ground? Yeah. What else? Feet, yeah. And that time, feet were pretty nasty. Yeah. Um, the hem of garments, um, animals, feet and hooves. What do you imagine she didn't see? Faces, faces. faces. yeah. The sky, maybe. The horizon. She couldn't see much. But who does it say saw her? Jesus. Jesus. And it makes me tear up. Jesus saw her, and then what did he do? 
He called her over and he touched her. He initiated this interaction. And after he called her over, look what he said to her. He said, woman, you are freed from your disability. Now I know that we've probably perked up the use of the word woman because but the, the term and the way they used that word then was not a derogatory term at all like we do now. It wasn't like woman, bring me my dinner. It wasn't like that at all. Um, but the interesting word in this phrase is the word freed um, because it was a Greek word that was not often used in this way. Another form of that same word was used again in verse 15. Now look at that verse and tell me which one you think it is. Don't worry if you get it wrong. Untie. Very good. Um, it's interesting. Take note of that for later. Okay, then what happens next? Jesus lays his hands on her and... Immediately she was made straight. And then what did she do? Glorify God. In, like just automatically. <laughs> but you know what's funny is at this point in the story I wanted to say, really? Your nanny, my butler. Like, this is scandalous. I mean, he was in a synagogue on a Sabbath talking to a woman, touching her, which he didn't, men back then didn't even touch women unless they were his wife or his mother. And, and then healing her. It was scandalous. It was all, total taboo in Jewish culture. And Jesus had to have known that the Jewish leaders had their radar up for him already. Ready and watching for him to make mistakes. Because if you look back, you can flip back to Luke 6 sometime and read. He had already stirred up some and had some conflict with them about the Sabbath. So what does it say, what does the, the text say about the ruler of the synagogue? What was his reaction? Indignant. Indignant. Yeah. He was indignant because Jesus healed on the Sabbath. But notice this. Instead of saying something to Jesus... Who did he talk to? The people, yeah. And what what he did was he started throwing rules on them, reminding them of the law, the law. And then what was Jesus's response? What does he call the ruler and his cronies? Yeah, yeah. And. He says this part of the verse, You hypocrites, does not each of you on the Sabbath untie his own ox or donkey from the manger and lead it away to water? So you do something to help something that needs something. And it's an animal. And ought not this woman, a daughter of Abraham, whom Satan has bound for 18 years, be loosed from this bond on the Sabbath day? Jesus was employing a tactic that was used, he used often to teach which was comparing the lesser to the greater, to make a point. By saying you will untie a donkey and walk into water, but deny this woman from being unbound by Satan, really makes a sharp comparison. But he's also saying something more. There's an interesting part of history behind this story. 
The main source of controversy between Jesus and the Pharisees at this time was the correct use of the Sabbath. Jesus knew the law, and he knew the laws about the Sabbath. And he knew he hadn't broken any of them. But he, hadn't, but he had broken something else. And that was which came to be known as the oral tradition of the law. See, for centuries, leaders, the Jewish leaders, had created additional cultural traditions and rules to put barriers around the law itself. They just kept adding fences and fences and fences around the true law. They did this, in essence, to put a hedge around it in hopes that they could prevent any possible chance of anyone breaking the Sabbath law. So, but what they did was give them more and more and more rules to not break. And as they added these extra laws, the law became more and more restrictive, more and more burdensome, and unattainable. These attempts to manage sinfulness actually separated the people even further from the law. And it elevated the rulers. Basically, it created more fear in the people and self-righteousness in the rulers. But Jesus wasn't arguing that the law should be relaxed or not obeyed. <clears throat> what he was doing was he was saying that the Pharisees had misunderstood the true meaning of the Sabbath. In the Old Testament teachings, there were four things that were stated in the Torah, four things stated as the purpose of the Sabbath. <clears throat> Excuse me. Number one was to commemorate creation. God worked six days and he rested on the seventh. Number two was to remember and call to mind their deliverance from the bondage of slavery in Egypt. Number three was to do good works and deeds among the people. Number four was to praise God for all of it and in all of it. In working this miracle, Jesus was reminding everyone that the Sabbath commemorates release. Twice Luke even says Jesus set her free. By doing this, Jesus was exposing the religious Jewish leaders of the day as the real Sabbath breakers. It's very interesting that Jesus heals three times on the Sabbath in Luke's Gospel. And all three of these were in front of guess who? The Pharisees. If these Pharisees really understood the deep meaning of the Sabbath, they would have known that there was not a better thing to do than to free one of their people from bondage on that day. But they couldn't. They were committed to the law, and they were therefore themselves bound by it. You see, they felt protected by it. In keeping and enforcing the rules, they felt safe. But sadly, they missed the larger idea of the Sabbath, which had nothing to do with rules, but was completely set in freedom. Now we're getting into the scandal that Jesus represented. It wasn't breaking the Sabbath or starting a new alternative religion, as the Pharisees feared. Jesus was on a mission to seek and to save the lost. First to the Jews, though, then to the Gentiles. The law, which was originally given as a gift to God's people, could never do 
what Jesus had come to do. He came to break the power of the law and the bondage of sin and death and to lead his followers to freedom, both now and forevermore. In Luke's Gospel, Jesus' mission was shown to have particular interest in caring for the poor, the downtrodden, the outcast, the disabled of heart, mind, and soul, and to bring them into his kingdom as well, which seemed very backwards to the Pharisees. As this story shows the healing of the broken and bent, it also reminds us that Jesus came to be bent under the weight of a cruel cross so that our backs could be straightened up one day. When he calls us from our graves and welcomes us as daughters of Abraham. Do we really know what this term daughter of Abraham meant? Um, do any of you really know, I'm sure you do, know who Jesus was, I mean, Abraham was in Jewish history? I mean, just throw out a guess. What did he mean to them? Father of the nation. What? Father of the Yes, the father of your nation. That's probably the best term for it. I kind of, I laughed and I thought, he was the goat. <laughs> to them, he really was. And um, the Jews believed, and rightly so, that all manner of blessing and honor came to them through this name, through this man. After Yahweh, the name was the most revered of all. It deems notice also that Jesus specifically chose to heal in the synagogue, the dwelling place of God for his people, and on the Sabbath, to show the people just how his kingdom would fulfill prophecy and what it would be like. You see, healing her was also a representative work of grace, that Jesus was doing, not just for the Jews, but for all people. He was graciously preaching the good news to the Jews first. And actually, some of them there believed. See verse 17. All the people rejoiced at all the glorious things that were done by him. So I'm thinking all the people didn't include the ruler of the synagogue. Unfortunately, some were stopped from believing by their own position. Bound by years of religious training, political power, fear, and status, though Jesus really did long for them to come. Yes, he spoke to all present that day, but take note, he was really showing who his true children were. And they were often from the ranks of the broken. In particular that day, his eyes were on her. If you, and Jesus, if you were in Jesus' presence, wouldn't you want his eyes to land on you? This woman had been overlooked for 18 years, but not by Jesus. His kingdom isn't like the kingdom of this world. Yes, it was the unlikely that caught his eye. It was her brokenness that drew him in. And he healed her. First for her good, and also for the good of those around her. Let's look more at this woman. She's there for a good reason. This woman was probably known for many years as the Bent One, a long-time cripple who made her way through the dirty streets of the town. Her prior field of vision was rocks, dirt, feet, hems of garments, the dirtiest parts of all society at the time. My guess is she probably lived in pain 
To the rulers and the people, she was likely abhorrent. It was a common cultural belief that it was always because of your fault, your personal sin, that you experienced abnormalities and tragedy. She was literally and figuratively looked down upon and had a limited perspective of the world around her. We didn't even know her name. But we know that she did come to the synagogue that day, and Jesus saw her. After healing her, he named her daughter of Abraham. This was the first and only time in Scripture that this phrase was ever used. Previously, she'd been known by her malady or her infirmity. Now her identity was firmly established in God's redemptive story. Elevated in front of all present by Jesus to a place of honor. High honor as a daughter of Abraham. There was no indication in this text that this woman was particularly pious or had, had done anything remarkable to earn this distinction. As a matter of fact, it was her crippling, disabling spirit that drew his compassionate gaze and his powerful touch. In a moment, she not only receives healing, but she has her God-given identity proclaimed openly in the temple. Jesus intentionally made sure that people understood something in doing this, which was that despite how they saw her, her identity was given by him and was one of worth and divine potential. Daughter of Abraham. And her identity had its roots firmly in the regenerative, regenerative, I can't talk today, regenerative and forever family of God. But Jesus wasn't only giving her this name to remind the people of this, it was first and foremost for her. He could have said child of Abraham, which would have lumped her in with the group. Uh, but no, he called her daughter of Abraham. And as he gave her a name, he, he fought for her. He fought with the synagogue ruler for her. He called her. He healed her and elevated her. By the way, the only other time a phrase like this is used in John and Luke's gospel is in Luke 19. And it's the story about a short little man who climbed up in a tree. <laughs> he was also a Jew, also despised. He was a chief tax collector. And what was his response to Jesus? He followed like that. And Jesus called him son of Abraham. Yes, daughter of Abraham was an honor. But you know, I have a feeling that just calling her daughter would have been enough for her. Because it really truly is a beautiful word. Right now I'm trying not to cry. I picked this one so I wouldn't cry, but I'm already close. <laughs> Last week and our daughter came for a visit. We have two children. Our son, our oldest is our son, Rex Jr. Our daughter, Blair, is our younger one. She's married to Drew. And, all, and they have a son named Bo Bolton. And all four of those people live in Denver, Colorado. So Blair had come in for the weekend for a visit with Bo. Um, it was delightful. 
She came in town for a couple of reasons, one of which was to attend a night of a bachelorette weekend for a good friend who had been in her wedding, and also to tie in a visit to see her grandmother in South Carolina so that her grandmother could meet my mother's new great-grandchild. I love this about Blair. She recognizes what's important and wants to show up for people and share those things with them. The visit came to a close very early Sunday morning, and Brad and I woke up early to be on hand to help. You remember all this, y'all know all those things that you're <laughs> having to gather to take, and she was flying with them too. She'd worked very hard to pack the myriad of things that you need, that she needed to get home with. And as we hugged goodbye, she said, well, that was much easier than usual. And we both laughed, and no one laughed. You see, we almost always cry when we lose each other. But I have to tell you the story behind those tears. They've been a gift to me from God, an unexpected reminder of the work that he's done in my life. About 15 or 16 years ago, I was praying with three friends who I met with regularly to pray for our children. I highly recommend it to you. Um, and of course, this started when our oldest children became teenagers. So you can <laughs> Uh, and I made it. my oldest child gave us a run for our money, and Blair was so so opposite. Just you know, she wasn't perfect, but she like they were just night and day in personality, both of equal value and equal love to me. Um, but I happened to stay off the cuff. I said, "Oh, well, Blair seems pretty good. She's content. She's self-sufficient and independent. I don't think she needs it very much. And I'm not that great of a mom anyway. She's a better one than I am." She had babysat and nannied, so I knew. To watch her with children was a thing of beauty. Of beauty. She was so at ease handling them. But one of my friends that day spoke up and called me on it. She said, there's no way that either one of those things are true. She does still need you, and you're the mother she needs. I wasn't sure then why I said that, but... Now looking back on my, at my patterns, I realized that I had probably rather condemned myself than to actually feel the pain of failing or coming up short, should I try. I had felt those wounds of not being nurtured as a daughter myself. As I look back now, I'm surprised at how long I operated out of those lies. I thought if I stayed in them, it would be easier than trying my hardest at something and failing, or giving my heart to somebody and it being hurt. I would rather project my future as a failure and live without than to admit my inability to make life work the way I wanted it to, to avoid pain. And my desire for something good was squashed. So I decided to live out of the spirit of condemnation rather than to accept the role that I'd been given. Now, this wasn't the only area of my life that needed Jesus' healing touch <laughs> or a friend's sweet words of wisdom. In the Bolton household, we have hobbled and hurt in many, many other ways, even bigger than this. But that's for another time. 
because I would be a mess if I sat up here and talked about those. But I'm happy to tell you if you want to know more. <laughs> um, I'm not hiding it. But I was so glad that my friend reminded me that Satan is the father of lies. And it is his work to disable us from our calling, our value, our purpose. I know now after many years that my identity doesn't lie in my children or my achievements in business or my performance in golf or how good a wife I am or X, Y, Z, you fill in the blank. It isn't any of those things at all that give me value and status eternally. It's my calling as a daughter of Abraham, beloved, cared for, treasured, enjoyed, delighted over, and there's nothing I need to add to that except for my need for him. You're in, you, and even that is not your identity or my identity. It's just the driver and, and also an unavoidable byproduct of living in this world. But if you're a follower of Jesus, he clearly says that your identity is as a daughter of Abraham, an heir to the covenant. And if you're an heir to the covenant, that means something really, really big. It means a gem. I'm missing a page. That's hilarious, Jen. All right, so I told her, there is a page six around here somewhere. I think it's in the kitchen. Um, oh. You found it? I found it. It was hiding behind page five. Imagine that. It means that you're a part of God's grand plan to bring peace and restoration in this sinful and broken world. You are one through whom he plans to draw in and nurture and bless future generations. It doesn't have to be big. It might possibly even look like a grain of sand. But your purpose here is oh so much better than any identity you or I could make up or try to live up to. I was um, used to nurture a son and a daughter towards the kingdom of God. From my story, you can tell that I did not feel equipped to do that. Oh, I've been raised, I was raised well. I was taught, I was educated well. I was taught about Jesus. I was required of in good ways. I lived in uh, a home that tried to point to what was right, but I really wasn't nurtured. And I felt crippled to do this for my children. Thankfully, that sweet friend in the body of Christ saw that I was believing a lie and called it out. She kindly and clearly spoke truth to me. And it's taken time, it's taken years, and I'm still at work in it. But praise be to God for the work that he is doing, has done and is doing. I have been determined to believe a lie and live out of it and accept the pain and hardship rather than to ask for help. I was around so many other women who seemed to be getting it all right. 
I know you do too. You are too. Or at least it looked that way. You know, one of the benefits of getting to be my age is that you really start to realize that none of us are getting it all right. None of us. And you kind of delight in that. We're all winging it in some way or another. So I say, accept your identity. Revel in it. In your need. And rest in Him to heal you. To do His work. It's about you and not about you all at the same time. If you're here this morning or evening and you're asking, are you saying that duty and good behavior and church attendance won't get me a place in Jesus' family? I'm saying, yes, I'm saying that. And if you're wondering, what does this look like to live differently? How do I bring my neediness to Jesus? And if you're listening and you're saying to yourself that you want this identity, but you have questions and you aren't sure if you have it yet, if you're asking any of those questions, find one of us, your table leaders, or one of the women shepherds here in the room, or any of the women in the faith that you know, and simply ask. Set up a coffee or a lunch sometime, or even a phone call when your kids are down for a nap or during your lunch break from work. But let me urge you, ask. Because if you're listening, and you have a weakness, or you're living out of a false identity or a belief that has controlled you, I want you to hear, there's a place to come. Imperfect as we are, this is your body of Jesus. Can you see yourself as Jesus sees you? Don't think for a minute that he sees you as broken, sinful, disabled, without worth. I hope this story encourages you to be courageous, to be kinder to yourself and your weaknesses and disabilities, and be kinder to others in theirs. And I want you to ask for help when you need it, because it's a very brave thing to do. Let me pray for you. Father, thank you for this time. Thank you that you don't leave us where we are. Pray that you will bless this time together. In our groups, in Jesus' name. Amen.